cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risk.net's podcast on quant finance. I'm Mauro Cesar, Quant Finance Editor of Risk.net, and today I have the pleasure to talk to Gordon Ritter. Hi Gordon, great to have you here. How are you? Oh, hi, I'm doing great and uh, it's wonderful to be a part of this. And thank you for making this happen by joining remotely. In fact, it doesn't get more remote than this, uh, given you are in Hawaii and uh, uh, right now it's late night there. So thanks very much. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, I'm all the way out in the middle of the Pacific. <laughs> tough life, tough life. Uh, just to introduce you uh, briefly to our listener, uh, Gordon, uh, you are the CIO and founder of New York-based Hedgeman Ritter Alpha. Uh, I like also to mention that you were named uh, by Ristonet uh, by side quant of the year in 2018. And uh, I also like to uh, to say that it's notable that you have several academic affiliations. Uh, feel free to name them. I, I don't because I'd surely forget some because there are quite a few. Uh, sure. So recently, um, as in in the, in the past semester, I've taught at uh, uh, the MFE program at Baruch College, um, NYU. Columbia uh, and a, a half semester, a half quarter course at the University of Chicago, actually. Um, and the, the fall semester lineup will be a bit different, but um, but uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, add a new course at uh, Cornell on reinforcement learning that I'm very excited about. Uh, that'll be at the uh, Cornell uh, Financial Engineering Campus in Manhattan. Fantastic. Uh, for this podcast, I thought of talking about two topics. Uh, the first relates to the paper on trade execution you just published with us, and the second on your research on reinforcement learning that you just uh, you just talked about. Uh, and about this, we published in the past uh, papers of yours as well. Um, the paper on trade execution is titled Optimal Turnover, Liquidity and Autocorrelation. You co-authored it with Bastien Baldacci and Jerome Benveniste, it's online in Risk.net and it's in print in the June edition of Risk, which saddens me to say is the very last print issue of Risk, as we now have gone uh, completely online. Uh, so a collection, a collection issue, surely, uh, whose value will skyrocket in the secondary market soon. Um, back to the trade execution paper, could you explain to us what is the problem you are addressing uh, in it? Uh, sure. So um, I'd say there, there's really two problems, right? So um, one problem is, you know, what is the most general theorem that one can can formulate um, in the presence of linear price impact costs? Um, <clears throat> but, you know, while being as, as general as possible and everything else, um, the most general theorem on, you know, the optimal trading strategy in a, a kind of a continuous time mean variance framework. Um, <clears throat> so the problem itself is not new. Um, in fact, uh, there's a, a lovely paper by Garliano and Peterson in 2016. Um, and uh, our result is, our main result of the paper is a direct generalization of Garliano and Peterson 2016. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing we wanted to solve was then to, um, Kind of work out some uh, explicit formulas that are implications of that result wherever possible um, and, and and mainly we were interested in uh, 
you know, there, there, there must be a fundamental relationship in, in, in the optimal trading strategy between the key variables of, you know, how often do the alpha forecasts change, right? How liquid is the asset <clears throat> and, and how much is the actual strategy turning over, right? So, you know, these three variables are at optimality are intricately kind of locked to, you know, in, to interplay with each other. So, um, the more, you know, you, you could have you could have alpha forecasts turning over very often, but if the asset is not liquid enough to trade uh, in, in any in any large volumes, then the optimal strategy uh, cannot turn over anywhere near as much as the the alpha forecasts do. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, in some sense, if if trading were free, if there were no price impact, then uh, strategies could turn over as as much as the alpha forecasts change um but you know in the world we live in trading is never free and uh in a linear impact world um <clears throat> you can actually derive a very clean closed form solution that you know at optimality uh relates the the the, the turnover rate of the strategy the autocorrelation of the alpha signal with its own lagged values and the uh, liquidity of the asset as measured by the linear price impact coefficient. I see. Uh, you explained there how, how that formula works. Uh, can you uh, compare it to uh, the formulas and the uh, rule of thumbs, we might call them, that were proposed in the past and those you mentioned at the beginning? Um, yes. Yeah, so probably the most famous rule of thumb in, uh, you know, kind of buy side quant trading is probably the uh, Grinold and Kahn rule. It's sometimes called the uh, fundamental law of active management, you know, which which is a similarly explicit relation between uh, the information ratio of uh, <clears throat> sort of a combination of independent bets and the the information coefficient of each uh, of those bets, and then the breadth, which uh, is essentially the number of independent bets, and the Grinnell and Kahn formula is, you know, IR equals IC times the square root of N, uh, where N is the number of independent bets you can make. So, um, I mean, that, that formula has always intrigued me because it, it seems to indicate that, you know, you sort of achieve an increase in information ratio, quote unquote, for free, uh, simply by increasing the number of independent bets you can make. And you can do that either by uh, broadening over assets or, or or broadening over time, right? Just simply just you know making more bets by by trading more frequently. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you know we we know that that has to break down somewhere, right? So all, all successful quant traders know that actually trading too much too quickly is kind of a recipe for for disaster. And uh, you know the the Grinnell and Kahn formula does not include the liquidity of the underlying asset as as an input, right? It was never meant to, in other words, it was never derived in a transaction cost aware framework. It was never derived in a, in a, a world where every trade has some price impact. Um, <clears throat> and so that was, uh, that, that was kind of a starting point. We wanted to have a kind of a, you know, a fundamental law of active trading, if you like, you know, something that related uh, the information ratio and the optimal turnover uh, to, to, to other fundamental quantities in a way that is consistent with uh, at least a relatively simple price impact model, the, the linear one. I see. Uh, 
A couple of questions on the variables you mentioned there. So uh, the turnover, for example, that is a fraction of the overall book size, right? Can, can you give us a, um, a, a more precise definition of it? And the other question is on the autocorrelation of trading signal, the alpha uh, autocorrelation that you mentioned. How do you observe that? Uh, sure. So, <clears throat> um, so the first question, uh, I, th I think, you know, it's typical in uh, among quant traders to to talk about, you know, how what fraction of their gross market value or GMV that the strategy trades in a typical time period. Right. And of course, um, this any such number would be an average over time. Uh, you know, so you might say, oh, well, you know, this model trades you know, on average 5% of GMV per day or 10% of GMV per day or whatever that number is for you. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, it, it and it's that number will be higher if you're you're trading only very liquid assets and 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 with relatively fast moving forecasts. Um, <clears throat> so the way we, we the way we defined it uh, precisely is uh, as a kind of a long time limit of so if, if X uh, T is your position, let's say in dollars uh, at time T, <clears throat> then we define it as the long time limit of uh, the absolute value of the derivative of X T uh, divided by the absolute value of X T itself. So it's literally, you know, the time derivative of X T is the, you know, dollars uh, traded per unit time. So it's literally like dollars traded per unit time divided by the dollars gross uh, at that time and then uh, in, a, in a kind of a steady state uh, or, or or a long time average equivalently. Um, yep. You know, for, for the alpha signals, real world alpha signals could be quite complicated and nuanced, but um, but, you know, so so so, you know, on on like real data, for instance, one could simply compute the lag one, lag two, lag three, lag four autocorrelation of of the alpha as a time series and you know and, and observe how that seems to how, how rapidly that seems to decay and if it decays according to an exponential law then you would you would have a half-life of, of the decay in in the paper we simply assume uh essentially assume an exponential decay um, so for example if the alpha forecast process were an ornstein ullenbeck process then <clears throat> You know, it, it's it's autocorrelation function would be an exponential, and you can talk about the half life, and and the mean reversion rate. I see, I see. And uh, another point I would like to ask is about uh, the Gaussian Gaussian process that uh, is assumed here, and the impact that is uh, uh, the pricing that is, is assumed to be linear. Are these assumptions limiting in the case of uh, application on real market, or are they, let's say, good enough? Yeah, they're both somewhat limiting, um, <clears throat> and and I can explain exactly how. Um, I guess first of all, the uh, the main theorem of the paper, uh, we actually make almost no assumption whatsoever regarding the. Uh, the alpha forecast process, um, and actually, when I said it was a strict generalization of Garlino and Peterson, um, they assume the alpha forecast process is Markov. Um, our result applies to a, a potentially non-Markov uh, alpha forecast processes. That's the mu in our paper. Um, uh, the only condition it really has is that you know it has to be a stochastic process. 
has to have the, be adapted to the same time filtration, and it has to obey, pay a very weak uh, decay property at infinity. But <clears throat> of course, then to derive our our version of the Grinnell and Kahn formula, we have to we have to work in a kind of an explicit model. Um, so that's where the Gaussian process assumption comes in. Uh, you know, we basically then assume that uh, the for, to derive this very explicit relation between autocorrelation, turnover, and liquidity, uh, we we essentially assume that the alpha forecast process is uh, an Ornstein-Uhlenbeck process with a known mean reversion rate, and and hence a you know half life of its autocorrelation, um, <clears throat> and and we use that to get the explicit formula. Uh, now, in, in terms of linear impact. Um, I think uh, you know. I think al along with um, pretty much the rest of the of the world who's done any sort of empirical study on market impact of large orders, I believe in the square root law. Um, it's it's the consensus is now so widely accepted that the 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 true exponent is one half, not one, on price impact. That people like you know Gatherall refer to it as the law, the square root law. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not I'm not trying to you know, argue against any of that uh, empirical research, far from it. Um, but uh, <clears throat> but but in order to derive a, a fully explicit formula, or even as in the case of our theorem on non-Markov alpha forecasts, to derive a fully explicit differential equation, um, uh, I, I'm not aware of any closed form result of that kind uh, for any other price impact model. Um, and and I don't think this is uh, this is that surprising because you know for instance in the Kalman filter, right? It's well known that uh, the Cal the Kalman filter is the solution to a linear Gaussian quadratic regulator. And as soon as it's not a not a Gaussian quadratic anymore, then you know it's uh, the it's hard. Explicit solutions are hard to come by. I see. Uh, how does this uh, formula uh, get used in practice? Uh, what, what are the uh, practicalities to, to to actually deploy it for the uh, execution of trades uh, within a fund? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think our theorem one could be applied uh, to any fund f for whom you know the uh, linear impact was a sort of a an okay approximation, right? I mean, you know, every trading strategy makes some approximations uh, when it comes to a kind of a practical real world implementation. Um, for, for some strategies, they, they operate in a regime where uh, the linear, uh, a linear impact is a close enough approximation to the square root law that, that the, uh, <clears throat> the efficiency gained by having an explicit closed form solution is, is worth that compromise. Um, <clears throat> I mean, but in terms of the, uh, the the rule of thumb, you know, optimal turnover rate and so on, um, <clears throat> you know, I think it, it can just be used to tell if a given model is, is is sort of within the ballpark of what could possibly be optimal, right? You know, if some, somebody comes in and says, oh, yeah, you know, we trade the most illiquid assets in the Russell 3000 and the portfolio turns over four times a day. Um, <clears throat> you sort of know that that's kind of impossible, um, but how do you know, right? So you could plug in those sort of numbers to a rule of thumb like this and get that it's nowhere near optimality. 
um, mm. in terms of its turnover rate. It's just just much too fast. Yeah, and uh, just to be clear, obviously this is a, a formula developed in continuous time, uh, but trading doesn't happen in continuous time. So I suppose um, you keep updating um, as the execution happens with the new numbers, the new liquidity and, and the new position. Uh, so regularly every I know, hour, day, uh, does it work like that? Uh, yes, exactly. Um... I mean, uh, <clears throat> without getting too much into the details of what we actually do, um, I can tell you that it's updated more frequently than once than an hour. Um, <clears throat> and um, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, and the other thing too is like in real world uh, implementations, the bid offer spread is a large source of of uh, of the the slippage or short term trading cost of a real order. Uh, you know, the, the, the our formula sort of op, acts as though uh, price impact is the only cost, right? And uh, of course, for for a large fund that's kind of uh, whose whose strategy is operating somewhat near its capacity, price impact is probably the most important source of cost. But but you know, you in a real life model, you'd get into a, Real trouble by ignoring the bid offer spreads uh, as as a source of cost as well, and you know the intraday term structure of bid offer spread. Um, <clears throat> so there are definitely modifications that you know that one has to make to take these beautiful continuous time formulas and apply them uh, in a discrete time trading framework where you have to generate you know discrete orders of uh, integer number of shares and so on. Um, but I think those same challenges occur in, you know, any any time you take continuous time finance and translate it into a trading strategy, such as you know the applying the Black-Scholes formula to option hedging, for example. Mm -hmm. um, the paper describes the simple case of one asset, um, and then it mentions uh, the case of n independent assets. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what happens in the case of an independent assets, and then uh, predictably, I'm, I'm going to ask you what happens in the case in, uh, in the case of correlated assets. Uh, yeah, those are both great questions. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm I mentioned the case of of, of course independent assets because uh, the, they their their optimal strategies, uh, their optimal trades trading paths that you would follow. Can be computed independently of of one another. Um, so <clears throat> I wanted to get to a point where um, we could, uh, you know, we could, because the the yes the the simple explicit formula that relates optimal turnover to autocorrelation half life and and liquidity is something that uh, the the we have those three numbers uh, for a particular asset and they'd be different for each asset. So um, <clears throat> if the assets are independent, uh, statistically independent and with independent market impact functions, so no cross impact, then uh, that formula would 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 apply for each asset separately. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we sort of comment at the end of the paper that uh, that 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 you could construct uh, something we call residual assets, right? So, if uh, <clears throat> right, no two no two stocks in the real world 
should ever really be modeled as statistically independent if they're just two stocks of two companies trading in the same market. But it's a little bit more defensible to model the uh, residuals to a, a multi-factor model as uh, like an APT type model as, as statistically independent. I mean, a part of the model specification is that the residuals should be independent. Um, it might be heteroscedastic, but independent. So, uh, <clears throat> and I mean, in a, in a real trading strategy where the portfolio is kept neutral to all of the known factors in an APT model, then, you know, in a, in a, it's kind of a useful abstraction to say, to think of it as we're trading, we're actually trading the residuals, you know, so like we're, we're not going to realize the, res, the return of a stock. We're going to realize the, the residual return to, to a factor model. Um, <clears throat> of course, that's only true if you have zero exposure to all of the, the, of the factors in the model. Um, but, you know, I, I, my sense is that a lot of uh, real world quant strategies do operate in, in precisely that way. Uh, they're not only market neutral, but neutral to a lot of factors. Uh, <clears throat> so, so I think there's something reasonable one could say there uh, by modeling the, the stocks in their portfolios as, as the residual of that stock. Uh, and, and then you could say, and again, you know, th this uh, it, this is supposed to be a rule of thumb, not an exact calculation of the exact turnover. So um, I think that would be a reasonable approximation. Um, <clears throat> the main theorem of the paper is supposed to be kind of the most general theorem that one could hope for on continuous time mean variance optimization uh, with with linear impact. And so in that main in the main theorem, we, we, we allow an arbitrary, you know, covariance structure among the assets, but um, <clears throat> it's uh, what, what we don't have is some sort of very nice, clean, explicit formula relating optimal turnover to, uh, to, to other simple quantities in, in the general case where all the assets are correlated. Uh, it's, it's not immediately clear to me at the present time what, what, what that formula would look like, right? Because mm -hmm. There would be a different the, the there would be a different liquidity parameter, a different linear price impact coefficient for each asset. But there might be, I don't know, there might be kind of a linear algebraic version of that formula that that you know takes those uh, kind of liquidity matrix and you know covariance matrix into account. That's actually something we are uh, working on. We, we haven't found it. We haven't finished it yet, but I'm kind of hopeful that there is such a formula, right? That could apply to uh, a general market of of correlated assets. I see. Uh, I have one last question on this topic, uh, and I'd, I'm not quite sure it's got uh, an answer actually. But uh, is it possible to quantify or at least discuss qualitatively about the difference between an optimal execution strategy and a sub suboptimal execution strategy? So, are you able to say? how much better one strategy is compared to another? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, one way one could look at that is uh, in terms of the objective function that's being optimized. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, all of the literature on optimal execution uh, that I'm aware of, and starting with Almgren and Chris in the late 90s, uh, who also published uh, their work in RISC, uh, I believe, um, <clears throat> this, uh, 
going, so going back to Holmgren and Chris, right, the, the utility function was a mean variance form of utility function where the, uh, the mean and variance are calculated not only across assets, but also across time. Um, so if, if you're telling, my, my first reaction is if you're telling the optimizer, you know, that's the function we care about, then you know an optimal strategy is optimal in that sense. It optimizes, you know, the the integral of uh, of of the uh, the P and L and the integral of the the, the integrated variance. Um, <clears throat> so one, I think that's a reasonable way of comparing, you know, how suboptimal something is. You know, how how much how much lower is the integrated, you know. P and L minus the integrated variance, because that's the utility function that these these things seem to care about. These the the uh, opt Chris and everything that came later, right, cares about that utility function. I see. Well, let's switch to reinforcement learning now. Uh, you published a paper on reinforcement reinforcement learning in risk years ago. Uh, in that paper, you were using Q learning. Uh, which uh, I appreciate if you could give a, a, a brief description of, and you applied it to a simple case of uh, of a, I think a portfolio of two assets it was, if I remember correctly. Um, since then, uh, quite a lot of work has been uh, done on the uh, on the subject. Um, notably, I'm sure you're aware of the paper that Igor Alpering and Matthew Dixon published last year, in which they used. Um, reinforcement learning for um, portfolio management. Um, the question is, where do you think we are now uh, in terms of research, in terms of applicability of reinforcement learning in finance? And uh, yeah, where, where do you see that stream of research going next? Uh, yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> so uh, first, let me say I'm, I'm very excited to see all of the attention and and you know the explosion of of work in this field over the last uh, few years. Um, <clears throat> I'm the the paper I wrote in 2017 was um, you know f uh, arguably a fairly a fairly early entrant to to the space, uh, and at that time you know a lot had very little had been done. Uh, to apply reinforcement learning to finance. So it was kind of a greenfield problem, which was nice. Um, <clears throat> so uh, what I hoped to do at the time was really to um, establish what the reward signal should be. Every reinforcement learning system operates by uh, optimizing some form of uh, cumulative reward over time or you know integrated reward if you wanted to to use continuous time language. Um, so <clears throat> uh, but but it's it's generally some sort of arithmetic sum of single period rewards that get added up into a cumulative reward over many periods. And hence the system can be trained to be uh, long term greedy, if you like, you know, it can think mm -hmm. many steps ahead in, uh, in in a game as as all good you know, cunning uh, strategists have done since the the, the beginning of time. Um, <clears throat> but the question then is, you know, if you have uh, a mean variance type problem where you're also considering uh, time as a dimension, just as Almgren and Chris did, right? In Almgren and Chris's execution framework, 
the variance was computed over the lifetime of the execution, not just in one period ahead. So, and and, and uh, fast forward to the paper we were just talking about, right? The main objective function that's being optimized is uh, an integral out to some, you know, some some future horizon of wealth and and variance. Um, <clears throat> So once again, then, you know, what what should be the reward signal uh, that we that we supply to a reinforcement learning system if we want it to learn to correctly optimize these mean variance problems over time? Um, <clears throat> so and for example, if we wanted to train it to. Discover the Almgren Chris uh, execution strategy from from you know, 2001, um, <clears throat> what reward signal would you give it? And you know the answer is not the obvious one. Many people think that in you know in any kind of financial problem, the reward is money. Um, and you know it's not that it's not that it isn't, but um, you also have to consider the variance. You have to consider the risk of of attaining that wealth. Uh, and I mean that's probably the most fundamental, you know, one of the most fundamental uh, kind of guiding principles in finance is that. Investors expect return to be compensated for risk. For taking risk, they, they won't take risk for free. Uh, they, ex they expect to attain a return as compensation for risk. So the reward signal supplied to a reinforcement learning system should really, it, it absolutely has to include that fundamental trade-off between expected return and risk. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to show exactly how you could set up a system with that kind of reward signal um <clears throat> you know and even at the time that 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 paper was written in 2017 uh you know tabular cue learning was certainly not the state of the art uh the goal uh, the reason i used that in that paper was to um, make sure that the results could be easily replicated by by you know authors all over the world um perhaps some having limited computational resources etc um, so Q learning is a system where the value of being in a certain state and taking a certain action uh, is simply recorded in a, in a matrix, a table, uh, and there are finitely many states and actions. Um, so uh, you know that uh, that's a famous framework in reinforcement learning because it goes back to a famous PhD thesis of Christopher Watkins, but that has not been the state of the art for a very long time. Um, on the other hand, since it basically just requires you to keep track of a matrix, it's very easy to code up. Um, <clears throat> but uh, since then, what I've been working on is is um, to move away from tabular queue learning and uh, and and basically uh, take the, the same reward signal, right? So the rewards there's essentially just one reward signal that you should always use for any kind of risk reward trade-off. So that's the same as in my my 2017 paper, but uh, we try to use kind of state of the art, uh, you know, state of the art uh, reinforcement learning methods, which typically involve having perhaps several uh, deep neural networks to represent uh, the policy. For example, proximal policy optimization or, or PPO is something we're a big fan of, uh, and uh, in which yeah, uh, exactly that, right? A deep neural network is used mm -hmm. to to uh, learn the policy. I see. Uh, 
I think you uh, partially answered the the next question, uh, but I still would like to to uh, ask you explicitly. Um, what type of problems is uh, financial problems? I should say is reinforcement learning suitable to solve? Um, yeah. So in general, um, <clears throat> problems where you know time is is uh, one of the key dimensions, right? So uh, optimal execution. Uh, it has time as a key dimension, right? You have a, a lifetime, a window over which the order is to be executed. Uh, and, you know, optimal trading strategies with alpha signals are a fairly direct generalization of that, where, you know, the alpha is expected to decay in the future. Uh, you're planning an optimal trading path out to some some future horizon, which could be very long, but still you're planning not just a single trade, but an optimal trading path. Um, uh, you know, uh, hedging of derivatives. Uh, one of the key, one of the key defining aspects of most derivative contracts is they have an expiration, and uh, any sort of hedging or or risk reduction scheme, or you know, dynamic uh, <clears throat> the dynamic replicating portfolio has to replicate. Uh, you know, only until the expiration. Uh, and and it has to, in some sense, look ahead. You know, when when the expiration is coming, the replicating portfolio will you know will behave differently than uh, when the expiration is is very far away. Um, <clears throat> so, all of those types of problems, um, <clears throat> where you know uh, where you have a time horizon and you're trying to act optimally but in a way that uh, optimizes a sort of a full utility function over many periods. Um, I think all of those problems are, <clears throat> mathematically speaking, they're all stochastic optimal control problems. Uh, and <clears throat> one way to understand reinforcement learning is, uh, it, it is it's a, a set of engineering tricks and engineering algorithms for solving stochastic optimal control problems that are simply too hard to solve in closed form. Um, so, you know, for for for, for 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 some classical stochastic optimal control problems, there's a Hamilton-Jacobi-Bellman equation that one can attempt to solve and, and derive the optimal control in closed form. Uh, and, you know, Merton did a lot of work on that. Um, and, you know, Merton and, and those who followed essentially found a lot of the, the the finance problems that could be solved in closed form using uh, an HJB equation and <clears throat> but but uh, there are uh, for every one of those you know beautiful closed form solutions there's 10 more problems like it that are you know have some inconvenient trading cost function or um, some discreteness you know some engineering aspect to them that make make it just impractical to uh, or, or, or literally just mathematically impossible to solve a Hamilton-Jacobi-Bellman equation, uh, but they are still a stochastic optimal control problem, right? Just a you know one that's very difficult, and but in those cases, I mean, that's where reinforcement learning really shines because it does not require you to solve to to completely explicitly solve the uh, the stochastic optimal control problem. It, it essentially provides a sequence of controls, or, but in reinforcement learning, they're called agents that converge to the optimal control or the optimal agent, the optimal policy 
um, iteratively by sort of improving upon itself. Uh, and I also think that it's um, it's no coincidence that uh, several Nobel Prizes in economics have been awarded for applications of game theory and uh, reinforcement learning is often applied to uh, to playing games optimally as well. Uh, the best chess and Go players in the world are are now reinforcement learning players. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Uh, so you uh, summarize some of the most common uh, uses of reinforcement learning. Uh, do you think there's any area where it's not yet applied um, massively, but it can contribute to? Um, surely there are. Uh, <clears throat> I would say first, uh, I, I, I would, for any new area, I would first ask, you know, uh, can it be thought of perhaps with a little bit of imagination, can it be thought of as uh, a, an optimal control problem in a, in a stochastic environment? Or, or can it be thought of as a, as, as a game, a strategy game that, you know, of, of one player against, against another or one player against a group of players or one player against an environment? Um, if, you, if you can phrase it that way, then uh, reinforcement learning will provide a sort of a, you know, practical engineering numerical solution to the problem without without giving a, a closed form uh, analytical solution to it. Interesting. Um, one last question on your own research. So you have uh, uh, you told us about uh, some of your current research. What else is on and uh, what's your next project? Well, um, <clears throat> so I'm still uh, I'm still working with um, Bastian and Jerome um, on you know, kind of extensions of the uh, kind of optimal turnover idea. Uh, <clears throat> so in the case instance, of the correlated assets that you were mentioning. Yes. Um, and, you know, trying to see if it has applications to uh, portfolios of derivatives or derivative hedging strategies. Uh, so so there's a couple of things like that that that. Uh, that are, are kind of outgrowths of that paper that that I'm working on with Bastian and Jerome, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm also still interested in uh, you know extensions of uh, uh, of the 2017 paper on reinforcement learning. Um, <clears throat> so the, and and those extensions could take both a theoretical and a practical form. Um, on the practical side. Uh, <clears throat> You know, uh, kind of research goes along the lines of of looking at uh, the problems with continuous state space and continuous action space. You really cannot get very far limiting yourself to finite state spaces um, as Q learning does. So, so for all for all realistic problems, you need can definitely continuous state space and probably continuous action space as well. So. Uh, and then you know state-of-the-art algorithms there using uh, using deep neural networks and and uh, <clears throat> and and policy optimizing in policy space rather than value function space. Um, <clears throat> and then you know once once you have really nice uh, really nice algorithms for for kind of you know for example proximal policy optimization or more generally policy gradient type methods. Then uh, we can start looking at, um, <clears throat> you know, give the give the system a simulation 
of a very interesting problem. You know, maybe several options on several different underliers, right? And see if it can learn uh, some of the really clever strategies that option human option traders already use. Um, <clears throat> You know, for instance, human option traders understand that uh, <clears throat> that that if you could, for example, if you can get a portfolio gamma neutral, then uh, you don't have to delta hedge as much, right? So because the delta is not is then not changing dynamically. So it would be interesting to see a machine learn that and figure out figure it out for itself. It would also be interesting to see a machine uh, learn optimal exercise for American options. Uh, because there, it's 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 in it's a case where uh, the action space is both continuous and discrete. You know, you have a continuous component of the action space where you could hedge an arbitrary amount, uh, or you can take the single discrete action and exercise the option if it's American. So, at, at each instant, you have that possible you know discrete action that you could choose. Uh, so it feels like reinforcement learning ought to be able to learn the optimal exercise boundary. Uh, and of course, we know where the optimal exercise boundary is, but uh, I just have not personally seen a machine find it without actually being told the model. I see, I see. Interesting, uh, plenty plenty on your plate, and I uh, hope you'll keep us up to date with, uh, uh, with the results of those. Uh, Gordon, it was a great pleasure talking to you today. Thanks very much for making the time for it. Um, yeah, and uh, hope to talk to you again very soon. Well, thanks a lot. And it's a, it's a great honor uh, for me to be a, a part of the risk.net uh, community and, and uh, uh, over as many years as I have. And, and, to, uh, and, and I just want to thank you for allowing me to be a part of uh, the podcast version of it today. Excellent. Thank you again and thanks everybody for listening.